Hi, I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And this is Climate Optimist. Welcome to another episode. This week, we're going to be pondering what we call the nuclear dilemma. Before we go there, I wanted to start out with this week's reason for hope, which I'm kind of excited about. The European Central Bank just released a report that underscores the costs of climate change in action. I'm passionate about this because for some people, numbers are the only way to communicate the need to act on climate. And if you start talking about money, everything else seems to fall in place. But the report shows that by the end of the century, the cost of growing natural disasters prompted by climate change could shrink the economy by as much as 10%. And on the flip side, it says the cost of transition away from fossil fuels would be only about a 2% hit to the economy. I mean, this isn't new news, but I think it's good when these sort of things come out, especially when you've got a UN conference coming up on climate change in, in Scotland. And I think there's policymakers out there that could still use a little bit of a kick in the ass. We have a few of those here in the US. No. I know. <laughs> Shocker. You'd think everybody'd be lined up and ready to go by now, but no, there's still some holdouts. Who Maybe, are they? I want names. I don't know if you take a map of fossil fuel production in the US and you overlay it with the states, you might be able to come up with a few names. Ah. That's kind of like a like a secret puzzle, treasure hunt kind of thing. You need a decoder. I see. <laughs> so when it comes to nuclear, I think we should acknowledge that we get that there's baggage. Whether it's the safety concerns, whether it's the nuclear waste it leaves behind, whether it's, you know, for some of us, the recent memory or fairly recent memory of the Fukushima Daiichi meltdown in Japan, or going back further, you know, the Chernobyl meltdown of, of 86, which by the way, did you watch the uh, Chernobyl miniseries? I did not. You should add that to your list. Is it pretty good? It is good. They said it was over-dramatized in some sections, but it was largely historically correct in terms of the events that took place. I'll have to check it out. What's it on? HBO. I don't have HBO. That's unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to try to check it out, though. Yeah, some pretty... I'll find it. I'll find it somehow. Some pretty compelling stories, and yeah, it, it it was eerie. It was not something you wanted to watch right before you went to bed. Let me put it that way. Oh, spooky. So why are we talking about nuclear in the first place on this podcast called Climate Optimists? The reality is even with all of nuclear's baggage, it provides carbon-free electricity at a time, I would argue, that we desperately need it. It begs some fundamental questions like, what should the role of nuclear be in decarbonizing our power sector? What about the newer designs that we hear about that are out there for nuclear? I don't know about you, but this was like a little bit of a challenging exercise for me because I don't know that I necessarily view nuclear in a positive light. Mm. But So you're saying you came into this... Biased. I mean, biased in the same way that I'm biased that most country music is is not great music. And that may not be well-founded. The reality was I listened to horrible 90s pop country hits growing up working on the farm. And I feel like it probably left some trauma. Trauma. And so, I'm Blame just... Blame it all on my roots. <laughs> I showed up in boots. Okay. Now, I don't know what you're talking about. Have you heard any new country? I, I like some of the it's old... It's terrible. 
<laughs> it's all like redneck dirt road truck bed. It's horrible. 90s country is like the golden age of country now in comparison. You well, weren't this, a 90s country fan? Well, I guess this isn't working for my analogy of, you know, what it means to set aside biases. I guess all I'm saying is I've looked at country music with a more open mind. Ooh. You know, courtesy of you. So while I still am not a super fan, there is yeah. definitely country out there that I can appreciate. Definitely. I, I Yeah, I look... I look back on a lot of that 90s country, I guess, now with a lot of fondness. So when we're talking about nuclear, it's worth kind of starting out acknowledging sort of the major pros and cons. On, you know, the downside, there's there's obvious safety risks. Some of those, you know, borne out in recent history. You've got a waste problem. It It costs more. On the upside, you know, as we alluded to, it does provide carbon-free, what I would call dispatchable power. And so as we're trying to make this decision, we we wanted to kind of look at those different pros and cons and weigh those in the context of what the alternative to nuclear mm-hmm. would be. Explain what dispatchable power means. Dispatchable power means that a nuclear plant is able to produce energy when it's needed. In other words, Wind and solar don't qualify as dispatchable because we can't tell the wind to blow and the sun to shine when we want it. Mm. Whereas a nuclear power plant, if we know a certain amount of demand is coming, can ramp up and provide the necessary supply. So Ah. thus dispatchable. So where does nuclear stand today? In the U.S., we get about 19% of our power from nuclear, which ironically is also about the same amount that we get from renewables. So, you know, together, about 40% of our power in the U.S. is is carbon-free. Very good. In the EU, about 26% of their power mix comes from nuclear. I bet you a huge chunk of that is probably France. Yeah, France has definitely got to be the biggest player there. Looking at those percentages, it's also worth kind of looking at what's happening to nuclear. And, and the reality is, in the U.S., retirements of nuclear facilities are, are outpacing new installations. The uh, Union of Concerned Scientists estimates that there's greater than like one third of U.S. plants are either scheduled to close or are in a state of not being profitable, which puts mm. them on that chopping block. So what, when we say nuclear is more expensive, what are we really talking about? Lazard's does a nice analysis of different types of energy sources and looking at their numbers, new wind and solar can run as little as $30 per megawatt hour, where new nuclear is on the order of $130 per megawatt hour on the low end. Now, you can have fully depreciated nuclear plants that are going to be more cost competitive, but you can see the stark contrast between the technologies. I should caveat these numbers by calling out the fact that, you know, with solar and wind, when we talk about it being cheaper, which it is, it, we're not accounting for storage in here. And if you're really going to compare nuclear to renewables, you, you would need to have renewables set up with storage to do that. Additionally, as we just mentioned, nuclear is fully dispatchable, which is another advantage of it, which really isn't borne out in these numbers. But even still, setting, setting all that aside, uh, new nuclear is, is very expensive power. Yeah, it it sounds like it's far and beyond more expensive than a lot of the renewables that are that are going in now. 
it also, I think, takes a considerable amount of time to get a plant started up. So that that's another thing when you're looking at trying to make an impact on these 2050 numbers and some of these goals we have, right? Is that, it, you know, it's going to take a decade to get one going anyway. So that's that's kind of a downside to this. But, you know, I wanted to talk a little about Germany and their recent choice to kind of shut down all their nuclear plants. I think it was after the Fukushima disaster, which you already talked about, that Germany decided, and this is probably, in my opinion, I think now based on, you know, political fear, right? So they made a plan, basically, to shut all their nuclear down by 2022, uh, which, oddly, they're going to exit hard coal by 2033 and exit brown coal by 2038. To me, it doesn't make any sense if you have plants that are already running. So, like, these are already built. They've already been paid for. Any of the carbon that it took to get these plants going are is already there. And rather than make a decision to keep those running and shut down coal, you know, I mean, I think I think right now nuclear is like 12%. But if you're going to shut down another 12%, why wouldn't you keep that 12% and shut down 12% of coal? Right. Like, I think they've said they replaced it, a lot of it, with renewables. But why wouldn't you pull the plug on the coal first? Yeah, you you would be 12% above where you were right. on carbon-free energy. And so I just kind of wonder if that was a mistake there. It's also not been... I mean, it's it's cost them money, too. They, they've estimated it's costing them annually $12 billion to do this. And 70% of that is from increased mortality risk from from air pollution. That's an interesting sort of you know comparison. I feel like maybe we're at least indirectly drawing here is that while I think we all can relate to sort of the acute dangers of nuclear energy, especially if its safety protocols aren't followed, that there is this known danger associated with burning fossil fuels that we, in a way, societally, we sort of accepted. You know, there there are millions of people that die every year prematurely from poor air quality. And, and those are, that's something that's that we can measure and we know is going to happen. So I don't know, in a way it just kind of feels ironic to me that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish the safety concerns surrounding nuclear, but it just seems interesting to me that we would, we would have such a strong response or, you know, like Germany, and I'm sure it had a chilling effect here too Mm -hmm. after Fukushima. And yet we don't view it in the same light. People aren't, people aren't up in arms about the premature deaths occurring because of burning fossil fuels right? in the same way that they're up in arms about maybe building a new nuclear plant. Yeah. That report I was talking about, it was 1,100 additional deaths per year. Wow. estimated. I don't want to say that this is all fear-based because there are definite risks that we've talked about, right? And there's waste, obviously, and that's a big problem. We'll talk about that later. But when you've got plants running, I mean, that damage has already been done. Right, or sunken it costs. It just does not make sense to shut them down until you're not burning any fossil fuels. And you were talking about some of the plants in the U.S. not being profitable anymore, which a lot of that can be attributed to, you know, the fracking boom, right, and cheap gas. Yeah. They're just getting priced out, and they're threatening to shut down more of them, which some people think is a threat by those companies to get subsidy, right? Right. But maybe that's not a bad idea. A subsidy to keep these plants running. I mean, if you look at the U.S., the history. It, we, I talked about Germany, but I think a same similar thing happened to uh, to the United States after the Three Mile Island accident, which there were no deaths, but after that scare, it really caused 
a backlash against nuclear power in the United States, and there were like 39 plants that got canceled that were going to be built. As a result of that. As a result of that. And, you know, if you look at that now, in the 80s, where do you think that power came from that those 39 plants would have cranked out, right? Well, right, we know it's fossil fuels. Yeah, it would have been it's fossil coal. fuels. And it's and not only, you know, in the, the 80s, but every decade after. You know, I just, I think maybe some ill-informed decisions were made at the time that are causing problems now. And I think Todd will go on the record that he does not, is not lobbying on behalf of nuclear companies. Or... I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> if any nuclear wants <laughs> to give this podcast some, some love, <laughs> kick it over here. <laughs> uh, it feels like a good segue to, you know, talking a little bit about the safety impacts or safety risks mm-hmm. rather of, of nuclear. The big one is, you know, far and away Chernobyl. And I think quantifying the true impact of Chernobyl is is complicated. And I, I don't know that we're ever going to fully understand how many lives really suffered as a result of what went on there. But, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the numbers that are available to us, I mean, there were, you know, 30, 31 deaths in the immediate aftermath. And the UN projects that as many as another 4,000 folks may eventually die as a result of radiation exposure, which wow. is pretty huge. Yeah, that's that's horrible. The The BBC actually did a, a great piece back in 2019 where they looked at some of the new research that was being done on you know Chernobyl to try to understand the full impact. And, and some of that indicates that it, it could have been orders of magnitude higher. You know, just in the Ukraine, for example, they're still paying out benefits to about 36,000 women who are basically considered to be widows of men that were involved in the in the cleanup after the accident. Wow. So definitely worth checking out. We'll have a link to that article on our website. Yeah, that sounds terrible. It sounds like a lot of the response to it too was, was maybe ill-advised or just not done well. The cleanup. If, if, yeah, the cleanup. If that many people, I mean, that's you can't do that. That's terrible. Well, and, and cost of the cleanup too. When we talk about cost, if there's any of these disasters, the cost is... It's huge. It's pretty massive. So, you know, there, there's that to, to take into account. But, you know, with the exception of Chernobyl, when we talked about Three Mile and, and some others, I hate to say this, but it, it hasn't been that bad, right? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people ironically look at Fukushima as evidence that maybe it wasn't as terrible as people thought an accident like that was going to be. Right. Obviously, we maybe learned a lesson about putting a nuclear plant in a tsunami zone. Right. I mean, those things maybe are some things that we should take into consideration when building these things. But I think there was one death linked to that that confirmed, but probably others, right, that they haven't confirmed yet or that haven't happened yet that have been exposed. But to um, your point, I mean, there were thousands of people killed, but those were those deaths were all a result of the tsunami, yeah, and earthquake. Yeah, the tsunami, right, yeah. And None I think that kind of got lost in sort of the yeah. kind of the fog of war, if you will, after the incident. Because I think I too saw Fukushima and said, "Wow, that's it's that's terrible, the end of nuclear right? power. That's terrible." But to your point, when we're looking back, yeah, it, w- it was it was a terrible thing. But the human death toll was yeah, it was pretty minimal. You know, in the U.S., there really haven't been a ton of accidents. One one interesting case I found was in 1961 in Idaho, and they had a reactor called SL1 out there, and they were basically testing these small reactors to see if they could deploy these things out 
in like Alaska and basically out in the middle of nowhere to power the radar stations. But they were testing this this reactor out there and one of the guys pulled one of these radioactive rods up out of the water too far, too fast or whatever. And, you know, those three guys died, but, which is terrible. But in looking at this, they're one of the very few, I think you can count on almost two hands, the number of people who've died in nuclear power-related accidents in the United States. Wow. And if you look at a lot of them, a lot of them aren't even related to the nuclear portion. Like, I think some of them got electrocuted and right. things falling on them and stuff like, just stuff that could happen at any plant. So what about the, the waste side of things? Well, they, it only produced waste that's dangerously reactive for thousands of years. So it's not really a big deal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, the, so basically they move the fuel assemblies into these 40-foot deep cooling pools. And it stays there for like five years. And so then they move them to these dry casks. And uh, they're filled with gas. And they're supposed to survive like natural disasters and all this stuff. So that's that's how they kind of store this stuff. And there's supposed to be a site to store all the nuclear waste in the nation at Yucca Mountain in Nevada. And I think they've had this plan since like, what, 87 it was designated? And I don't think anything's made it out there yet. Yeah, I know the feds were supposed to have a site operational by 1998, and Yucca Mountain was intended to be that site. So... <laughs> We blew past that one. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I think they're just storing a lot of this stuff at the sites. It obviously would be nice to have this stuff in a central location where, you know, it's being managed. And and when you think about how much stuff there is, this is the amazing thing is there's really not that much. So... You mean in, like, size? Yeah, the size of, and the amount of the waste that's there is the entire amount of the waste created would fill a football field long up to 10 yards deep wow that's all the way since 1950 that's crazy well sounds to me like you got a real economic opportunity on your hands i know you got more than a football field's worth of space in that backyard of yours and i'm sure the neighbors would love it well they could have done it out at yucca mountain i heard it was harry reed that screwed this all up i mean i don't care if there's a swimming pool a hundred yards long and ten feet deep up there of this stuff. Get it up there. Seriously, Harry, you're holding us back. So when considering nuclear, we also need to look at what, what's been happening in terms of advancing technologies. And for context, the vast majority of the current U.S. fleet are what are called light water reactors. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself in, in the details that I that I can't explain, but in essence, though, all those reactors are water-cooled, and a lot of the focus on new technology has been around using other substances aside from water to, to cool the cores. And so those are referred to as non-light water reactors. The proponents have really pushed them as, as safer, you know, more efficient, more cost-effective. The Union of Concerned Scientists did a pretty outstanding analysis on three of the primary technology types they looked at, at each of them against a set of criteria, like safety, what they called sustainability, which was basically how much waste it generated, how efficient it was with fuel, and then nuclear proliferation slash terrorism. In other words, you know, having fuels get into the wrong hands and being developed into nuclear weapons. Mm. 
it's a massive report, very interesting. But in essence, the conclusion was that despite some of the incremental improvements on kind of the sustainability side of things that these technologies offer, those really get outweighed by some of the increased you know, safety and security risks posed by some of these new technologies. So if you want to know more, uh, we'll have a link to the report on our website, including an executive summary and a great chart that shows each of these new technologies and kind of the pros and cons of each. So I guess my question is, if we want to get rid of nuclear, what are we going to replace it with? Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question in all of this, right? Because we've clearly outlined the fact that nuclear is expensive. Mm -hmm. It comes with safety risks, albeit maybe not as big as sort of public perception. It has waste. The reality is today, nuclear plants being retired means natural gas plants coming online. They're able to, you know, provide that same dispatchable power. They offer even more flexibility in terms of ramping up and down. That's not to say that renewables can't eventually take their place, Mm -hmm. but we need time. We need time to modernize the grid, a grid that is able to rely on more renewables and more distributed resources. We need massive deployment of storage because the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. So it's realistic to think that we're going to be able to move to 100% renewable at some point. But if we have to pick between using an existing technology that's carbon-free to make that transition or using a technology that emits greenhouse gases, it seems like a pretty easy calculus to me. Yeah. And there are other reputable environmental organizations that have concluded similarly, right? I mean, it's not just, don't just take our word for it as yeah. experts, right? The, the Union of Concerned Scientists and Environmental Defense Fund, both in what we read, you know, advocate for an approach that leverages nuclear as a way to get us to a world of carbon-free electricity. Yeah, I think at this critical time, like we're we're at this point, there's like it seems like there's this tipping point, you know, that's going on right now with climate and every little bit matters. It does. And if there's plants already running, it does not make sense to me to shut them down before their time has come. Right. Yeah, so you know, when looking at what sort of policies are out there to facilitate a transition to renewables leveraging nuclear, there were, you know, sort of three things that that popped out in the research I did. One was one was recognizing the value of, you know, nuclear as a carbon-free power. So while nuclear is more expensive than natural gas, that doesn't account for the value that it's providing in terms of clean energy. And so there are things like a clean electricity standard, a, you know, a price on carbon, like a carbon tax, or, you know, in some states they're implementing things called, you know, zero emission credit programs where electricity customers pay a surcharge for nuclear power or nuclear is able to participate in a clean energy market that was previously restricted to just renewables. And that helps level that playing field a little more. So I think another common thread that we saw in in the recommendations were tying subsidies for nuclear to meeting, you know, certain safety provisions, you know, increased security and obviously shielding, you know, ratepayers from further price hikes. And the third theme was we need to continue accelerating our transition to renewables by 
modernizing the grid by subsidizing things like storage technology and, and investing in energy efficiency. So it's sort of account for the value of the carbon-free power nuclear provides and do all the other things that we need to do to get to 100% renewable. Definitely. So given those recommendations, as always, we got to ask, well, what can we do as, as individual citizens that are concerned about climate change? And first and foremost, I think, is call Harry Reid <laughs> and tell him that we need to put the waste in Yucca Mountain. <laughs> in reality, Harry Reid retired back in 2017, but he's credited with derailing Yucca Mountain even after studies showed it was a safe place to put nuclear waste and we've spent billions in getting it ready. So thanks, Harry. I mean, I guess one of my recommendations about what to do, and this is maybe a cop-out, but you people are going to have to read something. No, I... (laughs) (laughs) It really is one of these things, though, that I feel maybe has gotten more of a bad rap than it deserves, but that's just my opinion. So I think I think what people could do is just look some of this stuff up, dig into this a little bit, and figure out where you stand on this thing. I think you're right. I think while, you know, obviously one of our goals of this podcast is to help take in the information, try to do some synthesis and bring out what we think is most important. We recognize that this is a, you know, a sensitive topic for a lot of folks. To Todd's point, it's good to go out and do some reading and, you know, we'll have links to all the resources we looked at on our website. Well, and also, you know, if you disagree with any of this or you have other points, you know, write us, comment. uh, Yeah, let us know. Let us know. Come at me, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from hitting the books on nuclear, the other thing we can do is call on Biden to support carbon pricing and incentives for renewables, EVs, et cetera, as part of this upcoming reconciliation bill. If you feel like this sounds like a broken record, that's probably because it is because this is the third episode where I've said that we need to call on Biden to to support carbon pricing and incentives. But I think it's important. I think it's important because this could legitimately be one of our last opportunities to take us in the right direction on climate change. And I'm not trying to be alarmist. I know, you know, many are guilty of being alarmist and it's a pet peeve of mine, but I think in this case, this is a huge opportunity. And if we all did just one thing, it ought to be picking up the phone or writing a Facebook message or submitting comments to help encourage our representatives and our president to get this across the finish line. And as always, we will have resources on our website to help with that. So with that, thanks again for tuning in and come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. That's where you go to submit your letters to Todd. And follow us on social at Climate Stewards Collective.